First time I heard I'd rather have Jesus was in 1945 in a youth revival at First Baptist Church, Beaumont, Texas. I was a member of the church then. And that was back in the days of Noah. <laughs> I left here 60 years ago. My soul. It's delighted to be here with Dr. and Ms. Patterson today. And uh, Brother John Morgan's here. John's about 10 years behind me. Of course, he's really way ahead of me, but in age, he's 10 years behind me. And he's got 50 years now at Sagemont Baptist Church and moving on. Incredible ministry there. I've watched across the years. Uh, his dad was my spiritual mentor before John was born. And when John was born, we had to drive down to Pasadena, Texas to see the new baby. And there he was in diapers. John, I saw you and played with you in diapers. My soul, what a, what a journey across the years. His dad mentored both of us, baptized both of us, ordained both of us, married both of us. And uh, it just uh, put his life into us and taught us those lessons that we've learned across the years uh, as we've uh, served the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and I'm glad to have Bruce Cothran with us today. Bruce is here. Uh, Bruce is a graduate of Baylor. He played baseball for Baylor. And Bruce and I have walked through some troubled waters and some deep waters and, and uh, some grieving waters. But Bruce is serving the Lord and moving on, aren't you, Bruce? It's great. And, of course, I'm glad to have my dear wife Sue with us today to support me, and we're grateful for that. Well, I thought what I would do today regarding this matter, when they said, come talk to us about 50 years of service at your church, how to, how to plant a church and how to stay with it, I thought, first of all, I need to probably take you through uh, some of the process of how I got there, because it is a journey that we each need to learn that God has a plan for every one of his ministers. Uh, when I got ready to uh, answer the call to ministry, I asked Dr. Morgan, where shall I go to school? He said, go to Baylor. I said, okay, I'll go to Baylor. And my mother and dad moved to Baton Rouge from Port Arthur, Texas, and I said, well, they've moved uh, over to Baton Rouge, and I said, should, when I get out of Baylor, should I go to Southwestern or should I go to uh, uh, New Orleans Seminary? Now, you have to understand, I was raised in Texas. Uh, uh, after two weeks after I was born, I was in Harlingen, Texas, and then up to East Texas at Gregton, and from there to, uh, down to Baytown, from there to Beaumont, Beaumont to Port Arthur. And uh, I was raised in the Texas school system. We sang Texas, my Texas, all hail the Lone Star State every day. And then we sang the Yellow Rose of Texas. By the way, they play that every day when they come out for the changing of the guards at, uh, at the castle over in, in England. Did you know that? And uh, you'll get that in a minute. Uh, and <laughs> uh, then we sang another song. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the day, all the long, long day. And you'll never be without the eyes of Texas upon you. In fact, the eyes of Texas upon you till Gabriel blows his horn. Do you teach them to sing that here, Doc? No, but we need to. You need to. That's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I was brainwashed in Texas, okay? <laughs> and so uh, Dr. Morgan said, well, do you plan to uh, pastor east of the Mississippi or west of the Mississippi? I said, I'm not leaving Texas. <laughs> what do you mean? And my eyes were set on serving God in Texas. In fact, I figured that's the only place I could. When we used to get preachers, we went to Mississippi to get a preacher. Uh, all our preachers came from Mississippi. But once they got to Texas, they never left. And so I said, I'm staying in Texas. I got through the seminary, came to Southwestern Seminary, and, and that's what I was going to do. 
As soon as I graduated from Southwestern Seminary, the Lord put me on the eastern side of the Mississippi and forgot me. <laughs> well, not really. He didn't forget me. But let me tell you about the story. I graduated, and that summer I had resigned my church down at Caldwell, Texas, and uh, those circumstances there, and uh, we'd built it up to be a pretty good-sized little church down there. It had been organized in 1865 after the Civil War, and was a half-time church, but within a year, we had 170 in Sunday school, and they said, we got to have a pastor on the field. And I said, well, as soon as I get through my seminary degree, I'll be down. No, you got to come now. i got to quit you. I said, I can't do that, and so ultimately, I had to resign. And that uh, really, you know, when you think about that, am I doing something that's a failure in the ministry? I, I, you, the Lord, you gave me the church. It's prospered, but I've got to wait, and, and of course, what they told me is, if God called you to preach, he called you to prepare. And I was almost through with my degree, and I said, well, okay, you want somebody on the field, go ahead and call somebody. I'll go on and finish my degree. And when I graduated, <clears throat> I had uh, John Archie McEver was here, and he'd find me a place to preach ever so often, and nobody was interested. In fact, I went out to a church one time. They paid 20 bucks a week. I'm serious. And they questioned me, and then they had a final question. They said, does your wife play the piano? And I said, uh, you looking for a pastor or a piano player? And they said, oh, that settled the matter right then. They wanted a piano player. And <laughs> she didn't play the piano. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I missed that one. And uh, I, could, I could tell you all these places where I went, and, and uh, so... I traveled over to see my mother and dad, and Christmas of uh, 57, I was working on a master's in religious education, and uh, uh, I got over, and my dad said, look, there's six churches, pastors over here, and, and said, uh, probably you could come over here and take one of those or start a mission church. Well, I was interested in doing mission work, and starting mission work, I'd, the Lord didn't call me to foreign missions, but he called me to establish a work. I said, okay, we'll do that. They said, you're tired, you've been in college now uh, for seven years come over here and rest a while. So got over there, took a job in the freight company because I'd learned to uh, be a bill clerk at Central Freight Lines and uh, took that job over there. And Dr. Palmer joined First Baptist Church. He sent me out to a church one time. I was interim pastor for about six weeks and he'd send me here and there to preach. But nobody was interested in calling me as pastor. Had one church said, well, we were really interested in you, but you're not 30 years old. You're just 27. We want somebody 30 years of old. Okay, I've got four years pastoring, and I've got a degree, to, uh, nearly two degrees uh, at the seminary, but I'm not 30. Now, you've got to be 30 to be a rabbi, okay? And, and I wasn't 30. And so they turned me down because I wasn't 30. That really does stuff for your ego, I'm telling you. And I'm struggling through this. And so one night... Uh, in the fall, but in September, my wife and I drove out in a new section of Baton Rouge, and uh, <clears throat> we wanted to get out of the house, and uh, we drove around, and we drove in a new subdivision, and I said, you know, I said, uh, First Baptist Church has some mission property out here. I wonder if Dr. Palmer would let me go start a Sunday school. So I got home, and uh, my dad said, uh, call Dr. Palmer, and I looked at my wife. I said, uh, did I say anything last Sunday that would embarrass Dr. Palmer? You see, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, no. So I called Dr. Palmer. Tommy, yes, sir. That's the way he talked. Tommy, yes, sir. Can you be in my office Monday night, 730? Yes, sir, I can. Click, we'll see you there. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. 
So I show up to Asa's office uh, at 7.30 on Monday evening, and uh, he's smiling, and he introduces me to uh, Dr. Mark Lohr, who was chairman of the missions committee, and he introduced me to Dr. Mark Lohr, and he said, we were wondering if uh, you might be interested in tar starting that mission on Jefferson Highway. And I said, well, the other night I, I was wondering if you'd let me go start a Sunday school. He looked at Mark Lohr, he said, the Lord's already talked to him, we've got this matter settled. <laughs> and so I went on the payroll, First Baptist Church, 200 bucks a month as mission pastor, and I had to keep my job at the freight lines. And we started the mission with 17 people, Brother John. You had, how many did you have? Six. You had six. I started with 17 people on November the 16th, 1958. <clears throat> well, let me tell you what happened. Two weeks later, the church where I had been interim pastor came and said, we've run our pastor off. We want you to come as our pastor. I said, you've done what? They said, we'll furnish your car allowance, we'll furnish your parsonage, we'll pay you utilities, we'll give you a salary. The church is already settled on it. We'd like you. Come on. You're already called. I said, I just started a mission two weeks. Oh, anybody can handle the mission. I had walked that route from the time I left seminary to go there so long and wondered what God wanted me to do. I didn't dare leave that mission. Now, I don't have time to tell you the rest of the story of how God blessed and things that occurred in our lives as a result of staying at that mission church. And it would not have happened had I left that mission church. But God put me there, and I was determined to do what he wanted me to do. And here's what I'm saying to you today. Wherever God takes you, don't be disappointed if you get turned down. Keep on working until he finds and places you where he wants you. And when you get there, you do the job he called you to do, and you stay with it. Amen. The kingdom is critical. The winning of people to Christ is critical. The building of strong churches is critical. It's very important that you do that job. And I want to share a few things with you today that will help you do that. You heard about the little boy that... Uh, visited the Catholic church, and the little Catholic boy told him all about the church and what they were doing. So the little Catholic boy came to the Baptist church, and uh, the little Baptist boy is telling him about everything, and the preacher got up and put his, his, his uh, watch there. The little Catholic boy says, what does that mean? The little Baptist boy said, not a thing. <laughs> uh, first thing I'd like to say is this. Confirm your calling to the ministry. Apostle Paul, in the greetings to the Romans, said, God called me to be an apostle. In his letter to the Galatian churches, he said these words, God separated me from my mother's womb. He called me by his grace that I might preach him among the heathen. Paul did not choose the role for himself. God initiated that process, and it's God's decision to call us into service. Our work is not from men or by men, but by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are his bondservants, and we are set apart and called for the gospel. And Paul was called at a specific time in his life. He did not choose his apostleship as some lofty vocation. His apostolic calling and his ministry was due solely to the initiation of the Lord Jesus Christ at a specific time in God's calendar of redemption. And your call is the same way. The Apostle Peter admonished believers to be eager to make your calling and election sure. 
And if every believer needs to make sure his calling and election is sure, certainly those of us who are in the ministry ought to make sure that our calling is confirmed. We validate that call, and we come to the absolute conviction that the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to us, called us for a specific role, and we must be convicted that we've been set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ to the ministry of the gospel. Now, the reason I say that is because we're in a spiritual battle for the souls of men. And the battle's getting worse every day. We must settle the matter of our calling because the trials and the temptations and the difficulties that every minister will, uh, will encounter in this present evil age will continue, and there's no provision for regret regarding our profession. Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And across the years, I've watched men who did not fully commit themselves and, con and make sure of their calling, they weren't able to stay in the ministry. And if you're not called, you cannot endure the rigors and the difficulties of the work of the overseer. Second thing, cast a vision for your work. Where there's no vision, the people perish. When God places you where you are, then you need to make sure that you have a vision for the work. Ask God to give you that vision. Plan your calendar. Work your plan. Reset goals and plans as they have to be redone. Uh, do your work in, in at least one-year units and then five-year units and 25-year units. Look down the road. Where does God want you to take this work, and what does he want to accomplish while you're there? And it's important you keep that vision before the congregation and before the community. Uh, always I would have a local newspaper article in the paper at least once a month. But here's another thing. Uh, you can keep the name of your church before the community if you will work your ministry to help those who have needs in the community and the community know you're there. Draw the membership into the planning process. Let them help you do that. And then once you get all these things done, having gotten godly counsel, don't hesitate to ask questions. You don't know it all. People have been before you have, have been down this road. Go ask them a question. Ask them, what did you do? How did you accomplish this? And let them help you uh, and pull people in who have professional vocations and who have specific skills and ask them to help you get this done. And then once you have uh, and meet a goal, celebrate it. Every time a goal is reached, have a celebration and reach that goal. And then... The Apostle Peter is very plain in what he has to say about ministers. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 5. Here's what he says. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by uh, compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory, does not fade away. I'm using the terms shepherds, overseers, pastors, and elders interchangeably. By the way, if somebody tells you, we don't have deacons, we just have elders in our church. Okay, let me tell you what you have. You have a Presbyterian church. Remember that. It's important you understand what terms you use and what the Bible teaches. And so I'm using these interchangeably. The shepherd keeps watch over the flock. He's the guardian. He's the overseer of the flock. And Paul writes these words, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the shepherd has to protect the flock. 
And that requires constant attention. You go in and you watch a shepherd in the field. He is giving those sheep his constant attention. He must be spiritually alert at all times of those souls entrusted to him. And to shepherd the flock includes tending, tending, caring for, feeding, protecting, and leading. And the Bible says we are shepherd God's flock. It's not your flock. It's not my flock. It's God's flock. The congregation doesn't belong to us. It's the Lord's church. Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. We're to give ourselves for the church. And we're just given the privilege and the responsibility of shepherding the Lord's church. We're, and we're not to be like the shepherds in Ezekiel that harshly and, brutally, uh, uh, and, and treated the flock of God brutally and cared only for themselves. And there's some that are like that. That's not what the Bible teaches us to do. The overseers are told to shepherd the flock of God by declaring the whole counsel of the word of God. Paul said these words. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You are to protect that flock. And we're to guard the flock against false teachers who will seek to lead many astray. When I hear someone say that he has a new understanding of a passage of Scripture, my spiritual antenna leaps to full alert. Usually what a person means is that regardless of what is clearly written in the Scripture, he feels privileged to adopt an alternate meaning that, excuse, meaning that excuses him for his particular situation that is in conflict with the Word of God. Watch out. Paul wrote these words. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is God-breathed, and God does not breathe error. That which has been given by inspiration of God is truth without any mixture of error. No one, no one, no one has authority to change God's inspired word. Amen. No one. That which God calls is sin is sin. That which God calls is righteous is righteous. That which God calls an abomination is an abomination. That which God states is immoral is immoral. That which God permits is to be permitted. That which God forbids is to be forbidden. And no one, no one has authority to lower biblical standards, and no one has authority to change what's written in the Scriptures. Amen. Jesus said, all authority... And heaven and earth has been given unto me. He's the one that has the authority. And God forbids the changing of his word in the Old Testament. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, written in Deuteronomy. And then in the final book, the book of Revelation, as God concludes and tells us what's coming at the end of the age, he writes these words by the Holy Spirit. If anyone adds to the prophecy of this book, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And then Paul tells Timothy, that young preacher, 
I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to those words. I charge you. I put you under the charge of God himself and our Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He will judge, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all love, long-suffering in season, and, out of, and, and, and convince and rebuke and exhort, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's happening today. It's everywhere. It's unbelievable what people will tell you they believe or they don't believe. It's not based on God's Word. I, I, get, uh, I get amazed sometimes. I had a, a, a minister of a different denomination one time when I discussed him with him something. He said, well, that's Paul. I said, yes, that's Paul. I said, isn't it interesting that when God was ready to have write half of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He chose the man that had exceeded Gamaliel in his scholarship to write half of the New Testament. And you want to say that's just Paul? That's the written word of the living God, and we're to live by it. Well, Peter addresses the issue of the attitude of the shepherds. We're served with joy, not under compulsion. It's not just another job, and we don't serve so that the church so we can scale money off from the church. We're to serve eagerly, which means we need to be ready and willing to serve. We're not to use our positions of authority uh, to oppress those that, that uh, are under us, but we're to serve, to serve as examples to the, to the flock. And there's always the, attention, there's always the temptation to abuse authority. But Jesus instructed his disciples not to imitate the Gentiles who use their authority to rule over others and advance their own interests. So the shepherd is to oversee, he's directed to lead, he's to guide, he's to rule, but his model is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's a servant leader who sets an humble example for the flock to follow. And a shepherd who exalts himself as a ruler is an unbearable tyrant. My goodness. Well, he's to be an example to the flock. You want to ask your people to tithe? You tithe. You're going to ask your people to read the Bible, you read the Bible. Ask your people to pray, you pray. You set the example. I remember I was struggling through the seminary. We had a minister come in from a different place to preach a revival. I, I was struggling with finances, and I asked him the question. I said, I said, look, we spend all our money for the church. We spend on, on cars and automobiles and gasoline, and everything we spend is for the church. Do I have to tithe too? And of course, my mother had taught me you have to tithe. And he looked at me and he wouldn't give me a clear answer. I guess he felt compassion for me. I needed a clear answer. And on the way to church the next weekend, God said, if you want your people to tithe, you have to tithe. I'll supply everything you need. You do what you ask them to do. You set the example to do that. I don't care how hard it is or how difficult it is or whether you can see it can happen or not because God's going to bless you when you follow that. Well, I've got to hurry. Be a cooperating Southern Baptist. Rejoice in the rich heritage and draw upon the vast resources that God's given to Southern Baptists. 
and read the history of where we've come from since 1979. Understand why we have the Southern Baptist Convention we have today. And don't let anyone take it away from you or move it in a different direction because the battle has been hot and it's been difficult, but God has blessed and we've been spared. Don't let anybody else with any other uh, idea or any other uh, theology come in and take it away from you. Teach the congregation about the work and the world mission work of Southern Baptists. Support every offering that Southern Baptists have. Support the cooperative program. You're here today because of the cooperative program. I serve because of the cooperative program. Brother John served because of the cooperative program. And remember this, you don't have to protect your people's pocketbooks. They do that all right. <laughs> giving begets giving. And they'll give. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Teach the Baptist faith and message. Somebody said, well, that's just an old creed. Anybody ever heard of B.H. Carroll? Well, you ought, to read, uh, you ought to read the commentary on the English Bible. Everybody ought to be... Now, I have some words in there you're not going to like, okay? That's okay. But you ought to read the commentary on the English Bible. Here's what B.H. Carroll said. A man without a creed is like a jellyfish. He has no spine. That is, he has no theological backbone. And these people that go out here and they say, Oh, no creed but the Bible. Do you know where that came from? It originated with Alexander Campbell and his salvation by works theology. I stand with B.H. Carroll. I hope you'll stand with B.H. Carroll. Then also you need to, you need to uh, organize the work. Jethro told Moses, you've got to organize your work. And, and, and it's important to do that. Teach your people to be debt-free. Get yourself debt-free. Teach your people to be debt-free. And Paul wrote these words. He said, Owe no man anything except the perpetual debt of love. And God said to the children of Israel, you shall, not, you shall lend, but you're not going to borrow, which means the world will support the kingdom of God, not you support the world system. That's important you understand that. And one other thing you need to remember, the rich rules over the poor, and the one who borrows becomes the servant of the lender. And you buy an automobile, and you don't pay the payments, they're going to come get it because they own it. You don't own it. Get your church out of debt. Once we got Jefferson Baptist Church out of debt, God began to shower us with all kinds of income to help us do that. We became uh, one of the leading churches in Louisiana in the giving to Lottie Moon and to, uh, the, various, and, and to uh, the Annie Armstrong offering and all of that. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to, we wanted to help set the tone of how to get things done. And God let us do that. And here's another thing you need to say. When you preach... Don't give a biblical lecture. Link it to what's happening in the world so your people can understand that God's on the throne and no matter what's around them, God has an answer to what's going on in our world today. Another thing I want to quickly tell you, do not judge your work by the work of other ministers. God puts you there to do your work. Let him judge your work. And I want to say this quickly. A uh, young man came to my church. John was his uh, roommate at, at college. Preached a revival. He said, I'm going to go back to Dallas. I'm going to start a new mission work. And I thought, why would you leave that big church where you are and go start a mission work? Well, seven years later, his daddy called me. said, come over here. 
we want to talk to you about going on TV with us. I said, okay. I got over there. It's called Prestonwood Baptist Church. I looked at that thing. I said, look what he has done in seven years. And I looked back at Jefferson, and I thought, you haven't done anything, French. And God said, yes, you have. I didn't put you over there. I put him over there. Because he has the work, he has the ability to do that. I put you there because you have the ability to do what you're doing there. You keep doing what you're doing. I'll judge your work. Don't judge your work. Don't let the devil judge your work by what somebody else is doing. And here's one other thing, and I gotta quit. I'm out of time. I wrote more than I can preach. Dr. Leslie Carlson taught my first seminary class called Biblical Introduction. He taught it in Truett Auditorium with a 35-millimeter projector. There were 400 of us in the class. How many of you got 400 in your classes today? Well, he taught my final class before graduation the summer of 57. It was an advanced Hebrew class. I remember his final words before we were dismissed. He said these words, boys, you have to love the deacons warts and all. You got to love the deacons and the sheep, warts and all, because Jesus loved you and he loved me. And we love them because he first loved us. Thank you for letting me come. God bless you. <laughs>